Hello, and welcome to Sobertown Podcast. I'm your host, Viv, and some of you know me as Sober I Thrive. Make sure to visit our website on SobertownPodcast.com. You will find our free Zoom calendars, Todd's modules for your Sober Toolbox, Sober Recovery Stories, and our link to the Sobertown Facebook group on SobertownPodcast.com. I'll chat with guests and community members about topics related to sobriety and recovery. There are also a couple of sober communities called Boom, Rethink the Drink, and the I Am Sober app, where most of our website contributors met for SoberTownPodcast.com. Hello, Sobertown. It's with my great pleasure. I am here to interview the recovery story of the hero's journey of an Instagram influencer around the world. Some of you may know him as his handle of recovery. It's hard, but it's worth it. Others may know him as Christopher, Chris, and others may know you as Atlantis Lionheart. We all warmly know you as a sober warrior. Thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's a great honor to share my story and to have your time and your audience's time. And hopefully my story resonates with, with people and they can find inspiration within themselves through my story. Yeah, that's a beautiful endeavor. We met on social media and Atlantis was someone that reached out to me to actually ask me a topic about topics in regards to recovery. And that really helped us both connect and speak about somewhat of our journey and get to know each other. His journey is one that is awe-inspiring of it in itself. And yes, our hope is that with his courage, with his just being so authentic, that the listeners that are out there be inspired as well throughout your journey. Atlantis or Chris? Atlantis. It's Atlantis. It's Atlantis now. Okay. Atlantis, tell us how your story began. Well, my, my story began in 1979. I was born premature. My mother was an alcoholic. My father was an alcoholic. I spent time in the hospital before I was able to come home because I was so premature. I, you know, I was really small. I was, I was a tiny baby. I had issues right from the get-go. Chemical dependencies, if you wish, from the get-go because of, you know, of circumstances. I lay no blame at this point in time. I'll just get that out open now. My life course was all decisions I made because I didn't have the tools to heal myself, which we all have the choice to, to be in recovery and to heal. I never took that choice myself. I took the other route. So as I grew older, my mom and my, my father, mother and father would always be at the bar, always drinking, you know, just a life of freaking debauchery and, you know, violence. Violence in the home, you know, my father beating my mother, you know, 
severely to the point where like she would be hauled out on a stretcher. My dad hauled away in handcuffs. This continued and then they separated. I forget just how old I was when they separated. But they both they both got divorced. They they divorced and then they both got remarried. And the and the relationships, those relationships were just as toxic and negative. It was it was then where my grandfather, my grandfather on my mother's side, he was a very wounded individual, we can say, spiritually and internally. He did god-awful things to all of his children, his grandchildren. So for about three years, he raped me, I don't know, somewhere between five and seven onward. Made me do God for God forsaken things. And you to the point where it still bothers me sexually in the bedroom to do things. And so through this journey of that and of the trauma, my mom's partner, he was he was just a he was just a, a mean man. He would hit my sister and I call us names, call us stupid, you know, to the point where until a couple of years ago, I actually was convinced I'm an idiot, that I'm good for nothing. And then throughout the day, keep playing the tape forward a bit. I, I was in at grade four and I saw my first deep freeze of cocaine at at a neighbor's that my mom and dad were really good friends with. And they, and, and that same, same time came home from school one day and the neighbors, me up and my sister up because our house was boarded up. We got raided by the police and our house was boarded up. My mom and my stepfather were in jail for cultivation of narcotics. Of controlled substance. I remember we had, we, my, my grandfather was around a lot that time. So of course we know what happened there. So not only do you have the, the trauma of your house being boarded up, but then you also have the trauma of your grandfather's coming and you know what else, and you know what that means when he comes. So, you know, life was life as a child was, it wasn't all bad. It wasn't all bad. My, my parents did, I guess, what I can now say is they did the best that they, they, the best that they knew how from what they were given for years. So I let that story define anger towards them and blame for my life towards them, which is not, not something that I hold of value in my heart anymore. No, I don't don't even hate my grandfather anymore. You know, all I can say now is how sick he must have been and the things that man must have endured in his life to make him do what he did to his family. And his soul has to live with all that now. And, you know, this whole process of healing is deep. A lot of deep, deep-seated childhood trauma so so we haven't hit 10 years old yet and that's my life so far starting doing drugs are about 11 
started with weed and then it got in right into, right into cocaine right away. I was hanging out with older people all the time. As I got older and into adolescence, I started getting into criminal behavior to the point of absolute, you know, being 14 years old and having robbery charges under your belt and multiple assaults, multiple robberies at 14. And the drugs just got more and more and more and more as, as my life progressed. You know, my mom and dad got to back together when I was, I believe, 12. I remember sticking up for my mom when they got back together and telling my dad, if you ever touch my mom again, I'm going to cure you. And, and he never did. He, ne- he never did. You know, he really tried to put his best forward. So I got in grade eight, I was in a high speed chase with the Calgary city police. I snuck, I snuck out of my house at, at 11 o'clock PM. And by 1123, I believe it was, I had robbed, I had robbed a store. I'd, I'd stolen a van, robbed a store been in a high-speed chase and split the minivan into two pieces just about and ran from police. And, you know, it's at that point where I think my mom was like, my son's got issues, but she never, she never gave up. You know, my dad, you know, I, I was a really good skier and my gym teacher in grade eight, she was actually married to Ken Reed, an Olympic gold medalist. Uh, and we shared a season's pass in the same ski mountain. And I was a naturally gifted skier. So I said, I have two talents. One, one is, well, one is selling drugs. One is skiing. Two sides of the realm where my life could have gone this way or my life could have gone that way. So they approached, she, her husband approached my father, mother and father, and I, I believe I was 14 years old at this point. And they, they told my parents that I had one, I needed one year of training, one season. So six months of on the mountain training, technical training, and I could go into the Olympics for Canada. And. My father's response to that was, I have better things to spend my money on. So of course, that's when the whole rebellion started. I started stealing cars on a regular, like daily basis, daily, daily basis. I was in a new whip, stealing cars. I, I was, I think I had the, out of my whole, all my friends, I had one of the fastest times that I could in a door and out a driveway in like 16 seconds with a pair of scissors. I was on a serious habitual offenders watch program and my friends were not the type of friends that you want to be associated with as a young adolescent. The drug scene, I tried, I smoked my first crack at a very, very early age. And at that point I was hooked. I remember smoking in my parents' house. You know, using, using my dad's peace pipe to smoke my crack on in, and I, I started my life of debauchery. So I got kicked out. I actually had, 
actually had three girls working for me. And one of my friends who was, his mom was best friends with my mom. He told his mom, his mom told my mom, my mom, my mom kicked me out of the house. And I said, okay, and that's cool. And my life of the streets started and of gangs. It was at that point I got involved with the skinheads right away. They were just a crew, got my first tattoo. I was at 14. You know, I still got that big sucker. It takes my whole back up. Then I was at 14. That was from a, a guy in, in the skinheads or KKK. I then progressed into other gangs of, of ethnicity and worked with them. I had my own street gang where it called Bad Boys for Life. There was a group of us and we used to do a lot of savage things, I'm going to say. Things that I've held in my consciousness for my whole life. Things that I am sorry for for my whole life. Things that have made me feel like a savage being to the point where I, the better I do in life, the worse I feel about myself because I'm a savage person and savage people don't, they don't, they, they don't deserve to get success in life. They deserve failure. You're a monster. And so at 21, I was kidnapped by a rival gang. I was beaten and raped in a basement and sodomized with God forsaken objects for four days. I was then tossed in a, in a curb in a snowbank to die. Somehow I did found that guy, got my retaliation, but it was one of those beatings that I wish I never unleashed because all the trauma that he endured and his crew endured in me and inflicted upon me. I can't get his face out of my head. It's something I hold in my, in my mind's eye that tortured me for a long, long time and put me in a place where I could not heal. I got married for the first time at 22, 22 or 23, I think, or 24. Straight drug party. Straight drug party. There was no love on it. There was no love at all. It was a, a relationship or a convenience. I can do whatever drug I want and she's going to sit and do it with me. You know, we're still friends to this day. Not good friends, but we're friends. You know, so that marriage ended abruptly when I'm actually not going to dispose why, but it was something did done to me. I'm not going to degrade anybody or anybody's character since the circumstances were, Hey, we were all drug addicts and there's no morals in being a drug addict. Your moral compass is out the window. So I, so I got into a story, getting into a lot of trouble in life. When I came back, I, I, I remember like being on the run and from the police and they, and I went to go hide in a friend's place. All of a sudden his girlfriend came out and they said, you two, you and you get out of here. They're both in the paper. So we both left, we both left and I came back 
And I, you know, the first time that they, they tried to get me, they couldn't get me. There was a helicopter in the sky. Just the amount of drugs I was moving was just fucking next level insane. The, the guns, the everything, guns, girls, cocaine, heroin. They, they couldn't get me. They had a whole neighborhood blocked off. A helicopter in the sky canines out. And they, they, I, I sat across, I, I sat across in a homie's backyard, drinking a beer, watching the helicopter fly around, looking for me. And that's when I went and hid. And then there's a short time later that we were told to leave. And my friend was actually in the paper for three counts of a homicide. He was wanted for. So it wasn't the, the crowd, you know, that you want to really keep in life unless you want your life to go nowhere. The skin's actually just crawling, thinking actually about the shit that we used to do, you know. But we'll fast forward. My, my sister was leaving, so I came back into the Calgary. And my sister, she was leaving with my nieces and nephews to Germany. So I, it was really important that I got to say goodbye to my niece. And so I wanted to say goodbye, but then I was going to, I was going to go turn myself in, but I was going to do an armed robbery before I went to turn myself in. I was, I had this brainiac idea of robbing a jewelry store and through my connections, I already had everything sold. So that I don't know what I'm going into jail for. I'm into so much stuff right now that I don't know how long I'm going to be in prison. So. I need canteen money, so I'm going to rob this jewelry store. I'm going to sell it all, and I'm going to go turn myself in instantaneously. All within, all within a one-hour thing. I'm going to rob a store, sell the stuff, and I'm, and I'm going to go turn myself in. I'm, what, a, what a great alibi. How, how could I have done this? I'm just turning myself in. I'm not going to go do this and then turn myself in. No, that's not, that's not how things go. So my, my sister made the decision actually to inform the detectives that had me, I didn't know I was on two years of investigation and being followed around and I was on a do not detain. So no matter what I did, I got away with it. So you can imagine when you're getting away with things, your, your ego just gets inflated. And your balls get really damn big to the point where you get pretty arrogant at the things you're doing. So my sister, she decided that it was best that they take me down. And I, yeah, at first I was really mad, like really, really mad. She's like, wow, you, you actually don't even know all the stuff that I'm into right now. Like if there's evidence on everything, I could spend the rest of my life in prison. And that was the part that scared me. And that's why I ran. So needless to say, I, I, I got out of my car and I had not one SWAT team, but two SWAT teams, two helicopters in the, in the, in the air, a whole community blocked off for just this one wee little guy and a humbling when I look at my life back at my life. Uh, where I am today and uh, the risks I used to take, you know. So anyway, went to jail. I waited nine and a half months in remand, waiting for trial. 
they they could not get enough circumstantial. Everything was circumstantial. There was not enough evidence to actually. I I had I was brought in on one charge, one charge, and two days later I had sixty four charges on my plate. And and my lawyer was saying he was good. He was good. He was referred to me by one of the people I worked with, and I. I owe him my life not in jail because it was all circumstantial. He he worked worked his magic. It was at that point where I started to go on a spiritual journey. I had an after several cellmates because I would beat them all up and spend my time in isolation. For the most part, I spent a lot of time in isolation. I just didn't like the people they put in my room. So I would, I was such an angry person. You know, I was just so angry and hurt inside. I didn't, didn't even know why. You know, I didn't remember about my grandfather. And I've suppressed most of my childhood trauma at this point. So then I got out and my, my last cellmate, he, he said, he was an indigenous fellow. And he said, your path is not the path that you're living. He said, the guidance I have for you is go down a dirt road and find a job at a ranch. So I, I took that into heart. I didn't do it right away, but you know, the next core, the next wave of, of my life was the one that was like, okay, I remember what that gentleman said, and I am going to, I'm going to go run that course. So I had a, I, I, I had a, I had a job. In Vancouver, I bid on it from Alberta. I got the job. I had to go. My work partner, he ended up, I'm, I'm 28 at this time, 28, 29. And the, the girl I was dating, her aunt had a house in, in a city. I'm not going to say where, but it was on the lower mainland. I was, I was able to rent that off of her family. Well, it turned out my, my work, the guy that I had working with me, he left after two weeks to go back to Alberta to see his family for the weekend. He never came back. I was stranded three hours out from my job and high and dry. And so I could not make money. I all of a sudden get a knock on the door and it's a guy and he said, I know everything about you. You know, have a new job or I'm breaking your legs. So I said, okay, with a smile on my face, it looks like I've got a new job. And at that point, I started getting into the collection of crystal methamphetamine of people that owed money. And, and then, of course, selling because the collecting wasn't enough for me. I also needed to become the hotshot. So that lasted about six, seven months, and I built a couple of hidden saves, and then I I actually got I got I got robbed at gunpoint, first time being robbed in my life, guns in my mouth, guns to my head, took my vehicle, took drugs that were in my vehicle, the money that was in my vehicle. It was that point where I was like, I'm out of here. And I literally, I, I just vanished. Well, lo and behold, the guy I was working for, 
he decided, decided to set me up for robbery. And he tried to say that I robbed him of, I'm not going to disclose the amount, but it was, it was a very high amount of narcotics in the millions of street value. I then had a hit on my head and I, I ran, I was literally running for my life. And of course I couldn't stop using it. So now my life is, now my life is in danger. It's over. So every, everything ended up getting, I was actually on the phone with my mom and I got out of the vehicle and there's three shots flew by my head and she, my mom heard them and she was like, you gotta, you gotta call the police. And I said, no, no, I don't. I'd rather die with my head held high than die a rat. And, and, and I ended up getting sorted out in the end through organizations that I was affiliated with that I didn't do it and I was set up and I was actually the end of that whole ring, you know, and then, then it was time for me to get serious with my life. So I, so I got, I got serious with it. All right. I went and joined the rodeo and I became a bull rider and a cowboy and I followed that native's advice. And I loved it. You know, there's a whole little acceptance and way of life for me. Of yes, I have this back background, but now I'm this person that is just this in the rodeo is just like good time Charlie, you know? Just he's like the he's the fun guy. And of course the drugs never stopped us. You know, my, my new name became cocaine cowboy and then, but I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun doing it. I got the pleasure of riding bulls with some of the world's best bull riders and training with them and being taught by them. It was very uplifting. I met a lot of artists, country music artists, and then I broke my back. I got hung up in a, in a rodeo accident and broke my, I had my, my lower lumbar disintegrated into my spinal cord. And I, I, I still like, I didn't go to the hospital. 18 months. I worked up in the oil field with a broken back until my sciatic nerve got severed. And then when that got severed, that was, you know, it was time to find out what was wrong with my, my body. And I, that's when I found out I had a broken back. And so now I'm on, now my addiction went from cocaine to opiates and alcohol. Cause while I was a cowboy and in that cowboy lifestyle, I would drink whiskey by the barrel to the point where my stomach actually had to be, be cauterized. They had to cauterize my stomach lining because I have so many bleeding ulcers and I was bleeding internally and going to die. So I did that. Then I, then I came home one day from work. Yes, still working. Haven't even had my spine surgery yet. And I'm still working. And here are my roommates. They are smoking my hydromorphine and oxycontins. And I was, I was just like, wow, this has to end. 
Like, so I, I moved back out into the country from the city. I moved to the city to be close to the hospital. So we moved out to the country again, and then the drugs kept, kept going. And it was to the point where my country hospital said, you need to talk to the surgeons and you need to get this, your surgery on the go, because we were giving you on a daily basis enough narcotics to draw up a cow and you're walking out of here and driving and and so i i said so yeah you're probably right so i went to the family doctor i ended up getting i ended up getting the surgery real quick after that one but you know of course i was still wrapped in addiction and i'm going to, to my surgery and I, and I was high on methamphetamine as I'm walking into the hospital to go have a life altering surgery, I've been up for four days and I'm high on methamphetamine. I almost forgot about that until sharing my story, you know, and same as I get out. And of course my, my opiate addiction was raging because I was on such a high dose for pain for so long that I couldn't get off it. And then again, I saw my roommates, my new roommates had gone into my pills and they were smoking them. And I, I just, I called my doctor immediately and I said, this is it. And I, I got to come off of these pills now. And he's like, no, you like, dude, it's going to take you like 18 months to come off your dose. And I said, doctor, you know, you know, my addiction, you've been my doctor for years, you know, my addictions, and this is what I've just seen. And this is what I'm about to try. So this is my like one shot of like, no. And he was like, okay. So he put me on a menopause medication to control hot and cold flashes. And I went through the worst withdrawal of my existence of life. And I, and I didn't take them and I have not taken since I've had two spinal fusions, a knee replacement, <clears throat> sorry, ACL, MCL graft replacement. So when I, I broke my, tore my ACL and MCL and my meniscus actually three, three days, two or three days before my second spinal fusion, I decided it was a good idea to go up skiing and do some jumps and aerials. This is the delusion of addiction though. This is, this is how much of insanity we carry in our minds that we're invincible. You know, here you are, you know, essentially could be paralyzed, but you're going to go and go skiing with a broken back and go off jumps and cliffs and do flips just because. So then anyway, I was running at that point, I was running a successful company, a very successful company. I was actually a number one contractor in, in Vancouver. So I was really proud of that, but I still, I, I still kept the cocaine going, the cocaine, the cocaine, you know, it was everywhere, everywhere I went, it was cocaine. And then I got married, you know, had, had the dream guy wedding. You know, got married, 35,000 people, center stage, front and center stage at a, at a country music festival. You know, everybody, everybody called you the king of sun, the king, king of country. We'll call it king of country just to keep, 
names out of it and to try to keep other people, so entities out of it. So I went through, at that point I, I owned, I had a, had a wheat farm, you know, you know, we had a, we had a two and a half million dollar house, a million dollar farm, you know, the businesses, the vehicles, I, I was pretty successful and, and then I relapsed really bad. I, I blew half of my septum out of my nose. I blew my nose while I was having a party and like an island came out of it. And I was, I was like, well, looks like I got to start cooking it because I'm in go mode. And I knew from previous years, like I'd had a long stretch without smoking crack. And it took me a lot to get off the crack the first time. It was actually when I got raped as, as an adult was the last time I touched crack cocaine. And I knew as I was cooking it, I was like, ah, oh, man, you're opening up Pandora's box. What are you doing? And I did it anyway. Got to the point where I was smoking ounces, ounces and ounces and ounces. And I had this breath of this moment of, of just of where, wow, I went from like 200 pounds to 105 pounds. And I just was so depressed that I actually called my dad who worked, who worked on my weed farm for me. My farm was a weed farm. And I, I told him if I'm not in the house in the morning, when you get here, don't go to the barn. Cause I don't want you to see me hanging and I was done. I was, I was done. I was done with the shame. I was done with the, the pity. I was done with the hurt. Then about six o'clock in the morning, my, I had through marriage, I had a family member that was, that worked for a treatment center. And I called her and said, I, I need help. And I need it right now. I'm like, I just threw all of my dope in the toilet. And this is my, this is my chance. I'm either going from this island to your island to your treatment center, or I'm going from this island to Vancouver to pick up more dope. Which way am I going? You tell me. So I went to treatment. I got out of treatment. Raging success. Beautiful, glorious success. I was cured, dealt with nothing, but I was cured. Everybody said, all the staff said, what do you think you should do extended? I said, no, oh, no, no, I got this. I got this. Well, 48 hours later, I was back on the pipe. I left my wife, said I hated her, didn't love her, didn't want anything to do with her, didn't want anything to do with her kids. And I just had to go my own way. I lived another year of absolute debauchery. My life spiraled. I bought the speedboat that I was never allowed. I jumped that speedboat in feet in the air off of wakes. I split that damn thing in two almost. I that, that boat drowned. That boat went underwater and I would put it back in the water. I was just like, I was actually on a death wish when I look back at it. And of course, I just had like a key little cocaine with me. Like, there's no, there's no dime bags of this stuff. This, 
I've got a kilo with me and, you know, I'm, I'm out to enjoy life. And, and I just, I was done. I was done. I needed to change. So of course I called my ex-wife having a breakdown. And it was just, I'm scared to die. I'm not ready to die. So she said, well, I'm going to hire you a sobriety coach. So I tried working with that. I went to Vancouver and I tried to work with that sobriety coach for a whole four days. And the gentleman said, you're fired. You're trying to tell me how to do my recovery. I'm going to do my recovery how I decided to do my recovery. Of course, not taking any advice from anybody. And then, and then I met the greatest being I've ever met in my life. This being showed me a path of lightness, a path of spirituality, not a church spirituality, but a spirituality of life. And I started healing. How did you meet her a lot? Just... Well, we, uh, spirit put us together. I'm, we moved into a brand new building, a brand new apartment building. I was an assistant superintendent for that building. And when I first saw her, I was like, wow, that is, that is an angelic being right there. And my foreman said, ah, there's still time for you to marry her. I said, oh, shut up. Well, it happened. We ended up being neighbors and I was really trying. You know, I was really trying to live this sober life, drug free, but I would still drink. I would still, I still liked my bourbon. And, and then there was a Halloween and I, I got like, I got blackout drunk and I'd never been blackout drunk before, ever. Like I used to drink, but because I drank so much, I never got drunk. I was just carrying on the alcohol content. And, and I actually like called out for help and I, and I told her that I don't want to hurt anymore. And so she, she just drew the line in the sand. She said, you ever drink like that again, we're done. Like, that's it. Right. You're, you're gone. And then she got me on to working with a medicine man. And so I started working with this medicine man and finding out my great spiritual gifts that I have and how my years with gangs were like warrior training for what I'm about to go through in life. And he could never tell me what I was going to go through in life. Well, one thing he did say is you're going to go through a series of four tests. And each test, the devil has less and less rules. So on the fourth test, he's got no rules. So you better be ready for that fourth test. Well, November of 2022, after 15 months drug-free, the day of the day later, I relapsed. But I relapsed with a vengeance. I burnt clients. I, I stole clients' money like substantial amounts of money, which is not my character, but it's how bad the drugs got me this time. And I ended up getting kicked out of our house, getting a police protection order put on me. It was not 
already for a second. So I'm very proud of her for that. I'm very proud of her for that because it is probably the kindest thing anybody's ever done to me because I actually had to sit with life myself. So November, I, I was smoking, well, September, October, November. November is where it came out of the bag. I went MIA for 10 days and I, I spent $70,000 in 10 days on drugs, literally on drugs, on crack cocaine. It was insane. It was the first time in my life where when I was done and it came out, it came out because I got a video from her and she was broken. And I stopped, but it had such a hold of me. I couldn't stop. I continued. I couldn't, couldn't stop. I ended up homeless, living on the streets of East Hastings, which I don't know if you've ever done any research on Vancouver, but the downtown East side, East side Hastings is the most drug populated streets in North America. I had a tent on East Hastings. I had a crew on East Hastings that rejoined a gang, 43 years old. And I was ready to throw that out that gang. I would have given my life for that crew. You know, I was selling so much dope under that tent that the old me from way back in the day came shining right through. And then I went to go do a drug deal in a hotel. This is after. So I went into detox for three weeks and I met this couple in detox and they got out and I got out, but I was only allowed out for like 48 hours because I was going to a treatment center and the staff at the, at the center, the detox center, they were like, no, you, the drugs have you so bad that we don't even want you to go out for 48 hours. Like. We want you to go up north with nothing and you're going to be, you're going to be fine. But I said, no, 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 I have to, I have to. So I got let out. I did not make it four minutes down the road. I was relapsing and back in my tent on East Hastings and the same couple, they, they needed a bunch of dope. So that they, they got me onto this healing center I went to in detox. And so I go and I was, I was selling them some fentanyl, some fent. I went into the bathroom where I got there. I had to go go to the bathroom. So I went to the bathroom and when I came out, I put a big crack rock in my pipe and I hit it with a torch and I died. I, they put pure fentanyl in my pipe. So somebody who doesn't do fentanyl and when you use a bong to smoke your crack, the size of hoop that you intake, I instantaneously tasted it. So it blew it out and I ran because they wouldn't call an ambulance. So I ran by the grace of God, I made it somehow to the elevator and the second elevator lot opened up on the lobby floor. I said, I'm overdosing and I dropped. I was unresponsive and flatlined for 12 minutes for about 12 minutes. I watched the fire department, the hospital staff, paramedics tried to revive me. 
from above. In what I now call it is the DMT trip that I never asked for. It was that moment. And then they went to go defibulize me into the defibs. And all of a sudden I was back in my body and I was awake and they took me to the hospital and I got, I got robbed for everything I owned. I had no clothes. The shoes off my feet were taken everything. So I got sent right back to, to detox. Detox took me back, which I have no idea how or why, but they took me back. And I went to a healing center up in Northern British Columbia. And I knew I had to change. I was like, okay, this is, my time is up. Like all these years of drug use, they're up. They're up. You've been in knife fights, you've been in gun fights, you've been shot at. You've been hit over the head with crowbars, with bats. You've been hit with brass knuckles. Like, you're, you're going to die. And so when I got to the healing center, you know, everybody had turned their back on me, which I, it, 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 it made me really hurt inside. You know, my partner, she, she, she just left me. She, she didn't want nothing to do with me. And I get it now. I get it now. She had to protect her child. You know, otherwise that same cycle would just continue. You know, I went in this healing center. I got, I got, I got the chance to heal. And when I, when I went in, I knew I had to heal my inner child, my trauma. And then I held deep down inside of me. I knew I had to heal that. I've known it for a long time, but I've been so scared of myself, of the hurt that I would go through on that journey that I continued the debauchery of life that I was living. Cause Hey, you know, being the best at what you do in your industry is it's really easy to go and spend 30,000, $40,000 on a binge. It doesn't even hurt your pocketbook. Cause you know what? You can, you can make that next week. No problem. This whole, the whole experience of how I went through this last relapse from November was probably the most humbling experience of my life. I've been the millionaire. I've been the rodeo star, the grandiose cowboy. I've lived the life of a rock star, but I was arrogant. I was cocky. I had no respect for anybody. If I had to step on somebody to somebody's toes to get to the toaster, I guess what? I didn't step on their toes. I stepped on their, on their whole body to get to the toaster. And then when I healed, started healing my inner self, started realizing what a waste of life I was living and that it's not me. You know, here I had these two women in my life, two ex-wives now, at this, at, you know, ex-partners, and they both loved me to death. Well, there's a reason that you could put two people through hell and they still love you. And that's because internally you're a really good person. So when I healed and I let go of my trauma that I carried on, I emptied my backpack, as they say, 
you know what? I, I don't allow myself to carry that bag anymore. That bag is too heavy, you know? And I went back to Vancouver, went back into the same homeless situation as I left. So I relapsed. But this time when I relapsed, my organs all started to shut down. I couldn't pee, I couldn't pee for a week because my pancreas was so swollen up to my bladder that I was pinched, that I was pressing my bladder and I couldn't pee. So it, it all, it all just made it, you know, it's like your body's done. Your body's officially done. And so is your mind. So why don't you embrace it? So I started doing my work with Instagram back in December, December 25th. December 24th, I believe it was, was my first video because I actually wanted to start talking about my life and healing through sharing my story. I've left a lot of my story out due to the ego reasons because it is on camera and recorded, but I've, I've added the significant traumas that I've gone through in my life and the, the healing practices of healing your trauma, your inner childhood trauma and loving yourself are the key. I don't care who you are, what you've been through, how bad you think you've had, you have it. Other people have had it worse. And if those people can heal, there's people that I look up to that I know they've gone through more than I have. And that's what gives me strength and and, and determination to carry on this journey. And when we have hard days, like I've had a hard two days, the last two days for me have been tough. You know, I had a client reach out to me that I, sorry, not even reach out to me, but reach out to people that follow me on Instagram and tell them that I ripped him off for $10,000 and trying to destroy the good that I'm doing. So of course I let him get in my head and I emailed him back. The second I hit send, I was like, you just let somebody win. You just took on their negative energy. You know, the spiritual journey that I've been on, Viv, is, is like none other. I've walked with spirit. Spirit walks with me. I get up in the morning and I sing my songs. And, and I'm now doors are opening up to me that I never thought would be open in my life. I'm sober. I'm sober. And I don't take anybody's shit on. I might for a brief minute, but it's not my shit to take on. Doing this whole sobriety thing on internet and sober living and sharing our stories is probably the most empowering thing any addict who suffers. It doesn't matter what your addiction is or how long you've been clean or how long you haven't been clean. I'm a drug drug addict. I can honestly look at this camera right now and look at myself and be like, I don't know if I'm going to be clean for the rest of my life. I might go out somewhere tomorrow and be having a shitty time and it'd be put in my face and I say, yeah, just one. I don't know. But what I, what I do know is every day when I wake up, I have to tell myself, you are an addict. Keep your guard up. You are an addict. Minute you let your guard down, that's it. You're complacent. You're now losing the fight. 
the minute we get complacent, we're done. Start six, seven months before it even happens. It took me year. It took me years to realize that. Years. You know, my ex-wife, she told my my partner, she said, if I hadn't known that you were drinking bourbon, I would have I would have gotten you help because I already knew you were relapsing. And that was a year and a year and five a year and three months, fifteen months before I actually picked up, right? So it's, this disease is caring. It, it, it's a killer. It, it's powerful. It, it's cunning. It is, it's taking lives. It's taking lives and it doesn't matter what anybody's done in their life, in their addiction. I would never hold anybody accountable fully for what they've done in their addiction because it is not them. It's not you. Don't think it's you. Don't beat yourself up and shame yourself because it's not you. It's the addiction. And that's what's going to make the change is when people start actually realizing that they don't have to hold shame when people who are normies, what we call normies, sorry, when they start realizing that addicts are not bad people, and that we're actually people with hearts and that not one of us woke up and asked for this life. That's like, that's like, that's like asking to have, to have your hand put in a fire. Nobody is going to ever ask for that. Well, nobody who suffers from addiction or alcoholism has asked for that. Nobody, but it's a stigma that people have that they think they're better than us. Well, they're not because we're all equal in this universe, in this realm of spirituality of life, we are all equal. And one thing I get, I love to share with people that are in addiction because it actually is one of the things that empowered me when I heard it, all these people that think that they are better than addicts. Well, 80% of addicts fall into the autistic spectrum, into the borderline autistic and ADHD spectrum, 80%. 98% of addicts actually fall into the genius spectrum of life in an IQ. So we are all more than smart enough and intelligent enough to beat this disease, but it takes being vulnerable. This is the first time I've shared my story. Like I've shared it. It was extremely hard, extremely hard. So I had to leave my whole country to start healing because I could not make it work in Canada. I have way too many ties to the underworld and drugs are everywhere for me there. You decided to leave like you decided to leave. I did. Yeah, I, when I got out of treatment and I used and I, and I relapsed, that was it. That was it for me. I was like, I, I have to leave the country. I have family overseas. And the only way that I am going to save my life is to leave. And how bad do you want to live life? I was not ready to die. I'm still not ready to die. 
I have too much to live for. Way too much to live for. Too many people that love me. Too many people that would be shattered to have to bury me. So you asked me before what, what inspired me to do my Instagramming. Well, I couldn't stay off the pipe. And I thought, if I'm doing something like that, being vulnerable, learning to be vulnerable, it's a start. It's a start in the right direction. Now, I remember my first live, I had one view. And that was my mom. Then my second one, I had two. And that was my mom and my ex-wife. Now I look at them. And I look at my 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 vision visual board to see where I'm reaching people, and it makes me not want to stop because it is powerful. Even though even when you're hit with people trying to destroy what you're trying to do, because that hurts. That hurts. That is like I know I did wrong in my addiction. You don't have to. You don't have to tell me this because I already know. I already live it every damn day. When I see the people that are engaging, and you know, my first three weeks in the United Kingdom, I reached 30,000 people in the United Kingdom. Incredible. 30,000 people from the United Kingdom. I don't even have that many followers. Like, 89% of engagement is non-followers. So to me, that is just, you're doing something good in a world that is so stigmatized with addiction. We are frowned upon. You know, the first treatment center I went into, I was so ashamed. I was so ashamed of it. And I walked in and there was one of my favorite customers sitting on the couch and she was an executive. And I was like, yeah, it's not just people like me. This disease affects everybody. And you know, and now, you know, like I'm going to be doing a live interview with another person. And I mean, I've looked up to this woman since my first treatment center I went to in 2020. I have looked up to this lady because she has children. She's gone through a divorce and she started a coaching business and she now helps empower women who suffer. And to me, that is the most, that is turning a shitty story into the most beautiful outcome we could all ask for. And that is why I do my Instagram. Awesome. Because if there's any kind of way to turn my life yeah. of gangs, sexual trauma, watching people get executed, watching all the things my eyes have seen, living through all the things I've lived through, the copious amounts of cocaine I've done, if I can change that script and save one person's life, I will die a really happy man. If I can save a million, which medicine men, I work with two medicine men and a shaman, 
and that they say, they've all said that I'm going to help millions of people through my story. And that's why I'm still alive. But if I keep playing with fire, y'all are going to see me back in another life and it's going to be living the same freaking cycle again. So I, I'm just, I've learned this one. And now it's time for me to do what I've been intended to do for a long time. Yeah. And that's help people and give people, give people hope when there's no hope left in them, you know, because I've been there. I've been there November 19th. I actually just saw it on my phone today. That's, I don't know, it was the 19th of November. 19th of November, I called my mother in the United Kingdom and I said, Mom, you remember my plan B? And she said, you can't do that, son. And I said, no, I can because I'm the one who's sick of suffering. I'm the one who's sick of hurting people that love me, that love me to the moon and back. And I destroy them. I was, I was picking up a gram of heroin and I was going to cook the whole shot and put it in my neck and kill myself because I was done. I had no hope, none. You know, I saw the tip of one mountain. And I said, I got one more fight left. I got one more. Now I don't care how many times I ever relapse if I relapse again. Because life is precious. And relapsing is part of the game. We all beat ourselves up when we do it, but it's part of the game. And we, we need to just embrace those moments and learn something from them. They're not a relapse, they're a prolapse. Take something out of that moment that is going to help you tomorrow. Dust off your feet and carry on. We're warriors. Wore my warrior shirt even today. I love it. Because we're warriors. You know, we, we all are here to help each other. And it's through this new movement of online social media that we're, we're going to do it. You know, I could be having the biggest pity party right now because I might have to go back to Canada, which is my biggest fear because I'm terrified of dying. But if I don't like do my, if I don't do get my money together and for my cause, which I can't work here, can't do anything for money in the UK. So if I don't do my fundraiser for my immigration fees, I actually have to go back to Canada and do it proper. I could be having the biggest pity party about that, but I'm not because it's life on life's terms and what is meant to be will be. And it's when we realize that, that we need to live life on life's terms and get out of our own damn way. We heal. Everybody wants us to heal. Even the people that say they hate us deep down. They're human and they have empathy and they want us to heal. And there's something else you wanted me to say, but I wanted to, to talk about also the, it, as of, it came through that you potentially also have a job waiting for you working with. Yes. Working with people in addictions and ayahuasca and doing plant medicine ceremonies. It is, I just had the first interview, video conference interview today with them, with the centers. They have a treatment center in Brazil and as well as in Peru. 
well, Uruguay. They were born in Uruguay and one in Peru. And it is their plant-based healing centers. And they believe in plant medicine and spiritual growth, which is absolutely amazing because I'm, I'm indigenous and I believe in plant medicines. I do believe that when we do ayahuasca and we let spirit in, we get taught lessons. My, my culture so much doesn't deal with ayahuasca. We just starve ourselves and go sit on a mountain for five days and four nights and don't drink or eat. And we start like we starve ourselves and we just go sit on a mountain in the sun and in the rain and we near death and spirit comes to us and speaks to us. And we do that and we walk in the woods and we go on medicine walks. But all of this at the end of it is all grounding yourself with mother earth. It doesn't matter what approach we take in recovery. It seems they all circle about and come to the same same, no matter what you do. It all comes down to the five elements, you know, and, and grounding yourself. You know, we are people of the universe and of the earth, and we need to ground. We need to be ground, grounded, just like any, you know, it's like your house when your power comes into your house, you have this grounding plate that gets dug into the ground to ground all your electrical system. Well, humans are of electrical nature. We're, we're, of, we're of, we're organic. We're human. No, we, well, we are, um, we're, we're based of quantum energy. Yeah. Right. So we carry a lot of energy within ourselves. We omit and take in energy. So if we're not grounded, we become this like scatter box of a being because we need to ground, you know, we need, we need to do self-care. You know, I notice when I do too much on Instagram in a week, I, I literally have to stay in bed for the weekend because I am, I'm done. Like I'm, I'm tapped out, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm juggling right now, you know, friends and family in Canada and speaking with them. So a lot of the time, you know, I'm awake in the middle of the night so I can converse with people that are going through stuff in Canada. Mm-hmm. So, so I need to be there with, for them. And then I have to be present for myself and not about this whole new group of, of everything I'm doing in the United Kingdom as the Canadian guy, Mr. Worldwide, they're starting to call me, which is kind of, which is kind of, it's kind of humbling. It's kind of, it's kind of nice. It shows that I'm doing something of good nature for once. You know, I've never, I've never looked out for other people before, but now it's a priority. You were telling me that you were doing a lot of holistic work. Yeah. Yeah. I do a lot of holistic work. I'm doing a lot of spiritual stuff, a lot of meditations. We do a lot of, of praying songs so I can do ceremonies and pull things out of people through, through my gifts that have been given to me, not Reiki, 
but it's more powerful than that. It's more on a spiritual level. I have brought my Western medicine with me to do, to do powerful smudgings. I am actually waiting on a wing fan that's being made for me and sent to me, gifted to me, which is a great honor from a tribe in Canada, because that's when you're truly seen as a medicine man and a healer is when you're gifted a wing fan and they hold the high power from the spirit world and the healing world. And I believe, I don't believe too much in, in myself and in, in, in God. I think it's all a mystery. I, I think it's all a great mystery and nobody knows what it is, but I do believe we're all, we all, we all have spirits and we all need to heal. And on a daily basis, we all take stuff on. I do believe in what we put into our body. I'm not a vegan, but I, I do strongly believe that when we honor everything we put into our body and give thanks on a spiritual level, when we align, when we align our minds to our hearts, to how our hearts feel, everything that comes out of our mouth is going to be with true intention. And we're going to live a, a harmonious life because of that. We, we as humans only use a certain portion of our brain. But when we open that up and start using more of our inner intuition and our inner moral compass, if you might say, we actually start living a pure life. Um, like there's now, I, I could not even dream of hurting another human being. You know, I'm sure if they went at people I cared about, I'm sure I could flip the switch. But it's something I'm not prepared to, to experiment with anymore. You know, where, where we drink certain drinks, like certain plants, they all carry healing properties within us. Crystals all have healing powers. Stones have healing powers. And they all come and go in, out of our lives for a reason. When we're in tune, when we align ourselves and our chakras, the universe will give us things almost instantaneously. It's like the snap of a finger, a blink of an eye. It's boom, 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 boom. Everything just comes to you. You don't even have to manifest it. When we put out energy, we're actually draining ourselves. This is a new one that I've just learned actually this week is that we cannot change a negative energy. We, we can't make that negative energy positive. We actually just have to deflect that negative energy away from us so you can actually put bubbles around yourself and use the energies within our body, the kinetic energy within us. You know, I, I can show you, I can stick a, you know, everybody says there's no such thing as kinetic energy in a, in a human body. And I always laugh at them and I say, I, any human being can stick a quarter on their temple and that, and it will magnetize to our heads. That is kinetic energy. 
and that's the quantum energy within our bodies is it runs in a frequency. So another thing I'm diving into is this device that I think is a heard about it. I sat in on a zoom meeting about this device and this device, I got this feeling within me that was so powerful that I was like, this is it. This is it. This is, we all run on wavelengths and frequencies. And when we are in our depths of addiction and we want to change, we are so consumed by negative energy that it's really hard to get the positive energy to spike. So this device actually pumps quantum energy frequencies into us to spike our, our positive, to spike our levels of positive energy in our bodies. Now people are using these devices around the world to like be millionaires, to, to reach financial abundance. Every one of these meetings I go to, I'm like, I don't give a shit about the money. I'm like, I'm, I actually don't care about the abundance. I'm like, do you guys, am I the only one that can actually see it? Oh, wait, you are the only one because you're the only drug addict that's in any of these forums. And you're the only drug, drug addict that is on this spiritual path of healing that is like, wait, if I had something like this that could have boosted my internal frequency helped me do it instead of me having to do it all on my own i could i could be years ahead of where i'm at now because i've had that little help you know it's like when when i go play my drum by a water source mm. or at a or at a at a spiritually charged place you can feel the energy come in and all your hair will stand on end. Whoever you're with, all their hair will stand on end. And it's just you're calling in this energy of whatever it is. Nobody knows. Right. Nobody knows. But it can't be a bad thing because it's, it just feels good. It makes you feel whole and pure. And so there's a different approach to how I've done my recovery. I'm probably one of the few that has gone the route that I have on it. There's no one way to recovery. I wanted to ask you, what would you tell someone? We're getting at the top of the hour. And I want to ask you this question that I like to ask everyone that comes on. Because as we discussed, there's no one way to recovery. So now... If you were to be able to talk to somebody on their day one, what would you tell them? What would be the piece of advice that you would want them to take away? I will love you and I will believe in you until you can love yourself and believe in yourself. And I will carry that weight on my shoulders for you. And that it is as hard as it might be, tenfold beats the life before. Tenfold, tenfold. Never in my life did I think I would be doing this kind of stuff. And now I cry on a daily basis, but it's not tears of sadness. It's tears 
of gratitude because people will message me and be like, thank you so much. It's like, wow, thank you. Because for 43 years of my life, I never had the chance to hear that. And now I hear it almost on a daily basis. And it's humbling. It fills you with so much gratitude. And that is living a normal life. Being humble, having gratitude, having honor and love. Those are things that nobody can take away from you. No disease, no addiction, no human can take those things away from you. Those are feelings that get burnt into your heart and they don't go anywhere. So even when you have a bad day, they're all still there and they keep you strong. And another thing I would say to somebody, when you have that, that feeling of using and picking up, give it 90 seconds takes an average of 90 seconds for every feeling to go away. So in 90 seconds, you, you might forget all about using. So just give it that 90 seconds before you make up your mind. Because once you make up your mind, there's no stopping you. Once you've made up your mind that you're going to pick up, you're picking up. Nobody can stop you. But wait that 90 seconds. Give, give yourself. 90 seconds and in that 90 seconds pick up the damn phone and call me and that i think that's all i could say to someone because it is all an individual learning process and everybody's different and the more we share the more we talk about our story that which is why what i do and ask people to share their story that's healing them that's actually putting them in the driver's seat of their recovery and, and, and them being like, wow, that was awesome. I want to do it again. I want to do it again, 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 again. Right. Yeah. And, and now it's, a, now, now it's a new addiction. Being of service and helping is now an addiction, but it's a healthy addiction. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Atlantis. I thank am, you very much. Yeah, I, you know what I? What we're gonna do is we're gonna have all your your links for your Instagram, and that way, if anyone would like to follow you around the globe, and from this from your recovery story, that's been so powerful, so authentic. So thank you. So we'll have everything so that everybody can you know, follow you on Instagram, see what you're all about and see all of your healing movement that you give out and you reach out to the community and you say, hey, share your story. And this time it was your turn. And I am grateful and honored that you're here. Thank you. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast and found it helpful, tell a friend or someone you know pass this podcast on. And my information is Viv, founder of SoberIThrive.org. I'm an internationally certified in addiction recovery, other known as a sober coach and a life coach too. 
My certifications encompass the neuroscience of joyful recovery, roots of addictions, alcohol and its effects, dynamics of professional recovery coaching, motivation to change, right thinking in recovery, family issues in recovery, codependent behaviors in addiction, and ethical and legal issues in professional recovery coaching. Go to my website, soberithrive.org, and book your free, confidential, 30-minute call. We can help create the sober warrior within you.